Section 38 of The Theory of the Leisure Class. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Theory of the Leisure Class by Thorsten Veblen. Fourth part of Chapter 14, The Higher Learning as an Expression of the Pecuniary Culture. This contention of the leisure class spokesman of the humanities seems to be substantially sound. In point of substantial fact, the gratification and the culture, or the spiritual attitude or habit of mind, resulting from an habitual contemplation of the anthropomorphism, clannishness, and leisurely self-complacency of the gentleman of an early day, or from a familiarity with the animistic superstitions and the exuberant truculence of the Homeric heroes, for instance, is aesthetically considered more legitimate than the corresponding results derived from a matter-of-fact knowledge of things and a contemplation of latter-day civic or workmanlike efficiency. There can be but little question that the first-named habits have the advantage in respect of aesthetic or honorific value, and therefore in respect of the worth which is made the basis of award in the comparison. The content of the canons of taste, and more particularly of the canons of honor, is in the nature of things a resultant of the past life and circumstances of the race, transmitted to the later generation by inheritance or by tradition, and the fact that the protracted dominance of a predatory leisure-class scheme of life has profoundly shaped the habit of mind and the point of view of the race in the past, is a sufficient basis for an aesthetically legitimate dominance of such a theme of life in very much of what concerns matters of taste in the present. For the purpose in hand, canons of taste are race habits, acquired through a more or less protracted habituation to the approval or disapproval of the kind of things upon which a favorable or unfavorable judgment of taste is passed. Other things being equal, the longer and more unbroken the habituation, the more legitimate is the canon of taste in question. All this seems to be even truer of judgments regarding worth or honor than of judgments of taste generally. But whatever may be the aesthetic legitimacy of the derogatory judgment passed on the newer learning by the spokesman of the humanities, and however substantial may be the merits of the contention that the classic lore is worthier and results in a more truly human culture and character, it does not concern the question in hand. The question in hand is as to how far these branches of learning, and the point of view for which they stand in the educational system, help or hinder an efficient collective life under modern industrial circumstances. How far they further a more facile adaptation to the economic situation of today. The question is an economic, not an aesthetic one, and the leisure class standards of learning, which find expression in the deprecatory attitude of the higher schools toward matter-of-fact knowledge, are, for the present purpose, to be valued from this point of view only. For this purpose, the use of such epithets as noble, base, higher, lower, etc., is significant only as showing the animus and the point of view of the disputants, whether they contend for the worthiness of the new or of the old. All these epithets are honorific or humilific terms, that is to say, they are terms of invidious comparison, which, in the last analysis, fall under the category of the reputable or the disreputable, that is, they belong within the range of ideas that characterizes the scheme of life of the regime of status. That is, they are in substance an expression of sportsmanship, of the predatory and animistic habit of mind, that is, they indicate an archaic point of view and theory of life, which may fit the predatory stage of culture and of economic organization from which they have sprung, 
but which are, from the point of view of economic efficiency in the broader sense, disserviceable anachronisms. The classics and their position of prerogative in the scheme of education to which the higher seminaries of learning cling with such a fond predilection serve to shape the intellectual attitude and lower the economic efficiency of the new learned generation. They do this not only by holding up an archaic ideal of manhood, but also by the discrimination which they inculcate with respect to the reputable and the disreputable in knowledge. This result is accomplished in two ways. One, by inspiring an habitual aversion to what is merely useful, as contrasted with what is merely honorific in learning, and so shaping the tastes of the novice that he comes in good faith to find gratification of his taste solely, or almost solely, in such exercise of the intellect as normally results in no industrial or social gain. And two, by consuming the learner's time and effort in acquiring knowledge which is of no use except in so far as this learning has by convention become incorporated into the sum of learning required of the scholar and has thereby affected the terminology and diction employed in the useful branches of knowledge. Except for this terminological difficulty, which is itself a consequence of the vogue of the classics of the past, a knowledge of the ancient languages, for instance, would have no practical bearing for any scientist or any scholar not engaged on work primarily of a linguistic character. Of course, all this has nothing to say as to the cultural value of the classics, nor is there any intention to disparage the discipline of the classics or the bent which their study gives to the student. That bent seems to be of an economically disserviceable kind, but this fact, somewhat notorious indeed, need disturb no one who has the good fortune to find comfort and strength in the classical lore. The fact that classical learning acts to derange the learner's workmanlike attitudes should fall lightly upon the apprehension of those who hold workmanship of small account in comparison with the cultivation of decorous ideals. Yom fides e pax e honos pordorque priscus e neglecta redire virtus odet. Owing to the circumstance that this knowledge has become part of the elementary requirements in our system of education, the ability to use and to understand certain of the dead languages of southern Europe is not only gratifying to the person who finds occasion to parade his accomplishments in this respect, but the evidence of such knowledge serves at the same time to recommend any savant to his audience, both lay and learned. It is currently expected that a certain number of years shall have been spent in acquiring this substantially useless information, and its absence creates a presumption of hasty and precarious learning, as well as of a vulgar practicality that is equally obnoxious to the conventional standards of sound scholarship and intellectual force. The case is analogous to what happens in the purchase of any article of consumption by a purchaser who is not an expert judge of materials or of workmanship. He makes his estimate of value of the article chiefly on the ground of the apparent expensiveness of the finish of those decorative parts and features which have no immediate relation to the intrinsic usefulness of the article the presumption being that some sort of ill-defined proportion subsists between the substantial value of an article and the expense of adornment added in order to sell it, the presumption that there can ordinarily be no sound scholarship where a knowledge of the classics and humanities is wanting, leads to a conspicuous waste of time and labor on the part of the general body of students in acquiring such knowledge. The conventional insistence on a modicum of conspicuous waste as an incident of all reputable scholarship has affected our canons of taste and of serviceability in matters of scholarship in much the same way as the same principle has influenced our judgment of the serviceability of manufactured goods. It is true 
Since conspicuous consumption has gained more and more on conspicuous leisure as a means of repute, the acquisition of the dead languages is no longer so imperative a requirement as it once was, and its talismanic virtue as a voucher of scholarship has suffered a concomitant impairment. But while this is true, it is also true that the classics have scarcely lost in absolute value as a voucher of scholastic respectability, since for this purpose it is only necessary that the scholar should be able to put in evidence some learning which is conventionally recognized as evidence of wasted time, and the classics lend themselves with great facility to this use. Indeed, there can be little doubt that it is their utility as evidence of wasted time and effort, and hence of the pecuniary strength necessary in order to afford this waste, that has secured to the classics their position of prerogative in the scheme of higher learning, and has led to their being esteemed the most honorific of all learning. They serve the decorative ends of leisure class learning better than any other body of knowledge, and hence they are an effective means of reputability. In this respect, the classics have until lately had scarcely a rival. They still have no dangerous rival on the continent of Europe, but lately, since college athletics have won their way into a recognized standing as an accredited field of scholarly accomplishment, this latter branch of learning, if athletics may be freely classed as learning, has become a rival of the classics for the primacy in leisure class education in American and English schools. Athletics have an obvious advantage over the classics for the purpose of leisure class learning, since success as an athlete presumes not only waste of time, but also waste of money, as well as the possession of certain highly unindustrial archaic traits of character and temperament. In the German universities, the place of athletics and Greek letter fraternities as a leisure class scholarly occupation has in some measure been supplied by a skilled and graded inebriety and a perfunctory dueling. The leisure class and its standard of virtue, archaism and waste, can scarcely have been concerned in the introduction of the classics into the scheme of the higher learning, but the tenacious retention of the classics by the higher schools, and the high degree of reputability which still attaches to them, are no doubt due to their conforming so closely to the requirements of archaism and waste. Classic always carries this connotation of wasteful and archaic, whether it is used to denote the dead languages or the obsolete or obsolescent forms of thought and diction in the living language, or to denote other items of scholarly activity or apparatus to which it is applied with less aptness. So the archaic idiom of the English language is spoken of as classic English. Its use is imperative in all speaking and writing upon serious topics, and a facile use of it lends dignity to even the most commonplace and trivial string of talk. The newest form of English diction is, of course, never written. The sense of that leisure class propriety, which requires archaism in speech, is present even in the most illiterate or sensational writers in sufficient force to prevent such a lapse. On the other hand, the highest and most conventionalized style of archaic diction is, quite characteristically, properly employed only in communications between an anthropomorphic divinity and his subjects. Midway between these extremes lies the everyday speech of leisure class conversation and literature. Elegant diction, whether in writing or speaking, is an effective means of reputability. It is of moment to know, with some precision, what is the degree of archaism conventionally required in speaking on any given topic. Usage differs appreciably from the pulpit to the marketplace. The latter, as might be expected, admits the use of relatively new and effective words and turns of expression, even by fastidious persons. A discriminative avoidance of neologisms is honorific, not only because it argues that time has been wasted in acquiring the obsolescent habit of speech, 
but also as showing that the speaker has from infancy habitually associated with persons who have been familiar with the obsolescent idiom. It thereby goes to show his leisure class antecedents. Great purity of speech is presumptive evidence of several lives spent in other than vulgarly useful occupations, although its evidence is by no means entirely conclusive to this point. As felicitous an instance of feudal classicism as can be well found, outside of the Far East, is the conventional spelling of the English language. A breach of the proprieties in spelling is extremely annoying, and will discredit any writer in the eyes of all persons who are possessed of a developed sense of the true and beautiful. English orthography satisfies all the requirements of the canons of reputability, under the law of conspicuous waste. It is archaic, cumbrous, and ineffective. Its acquisition consumes much time and effort. Failure to acquire it is easy of detection. Therefore, it is the first and readiest test of reputability in learning, and conformity to its ritual is indispensable to a blameless scholastic life. On this head of purity of speech, as at other points where a conventional usage rests on the canons of archaism and waste, the spokesman for the usage instinctively takes an apologetic attitude. It is contended in substance that a punctilious use of ancient and accredited locutions will serve to convey thought more adequately and more precisely than would be the straightforward use of the latest form of spoken English, whereas it is notorious that the ideas of today are effectively expressed in the slang of today. Classic speech has the honorific virtue of dignity. It commands attention and respect as being the accredited method of communication under the leisure class scheme of life, because it carries a pointed suggestion of the industrial exemption of the speaker. The advantage of the accredited locutions lies in their reputability. They are reputable because they are cumbrous and out of date, and therefore argue waste of time and exemption from the use and the need of direct and forcible speech. End of section 38. End of the theory of the leisure class by Thorsten Veblen.